0: We had our marriage seminar this weekend and uh I, I do think it went quite well. I appreciate those who uh participated in it and I hope it was helpful, a blessing. What I want to do with the sermon this morning is really wrap that up. So you're getting a marriage sermon this morning. Uh I want to read to us from Ephesians chapter five, probably the best known text in all of Scripture about marriage. Uh, I'll begin in Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty two. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything." Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us now through your word. That you would shape us more and more into the kind of people you want us to be. Father, I especially pray for your blessings to rain down upon uh, our marriages today. That we might live more faithfully and wisely. In the covenant of marriage for those who are not married and long to be, we ask that You would provide godly spouses for them. For those who aspire to be married someday, we pray that You would encourage them in this aspiration. For those of us who are cynical about marriage, even perhaps our own marriages, we pray that You would restore our hope and our joy. Father, we pray that You would fill the homes of this congregation with joy, with peace, with love. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my favorite books is uh, actually by a Russian Orthodox uh, theologian, Alexander Schmemann. It's entitled For the Life of the World. And uh, there's, a, there's a section in that book that has to do with marriage. And he talks about the time he saw an elderly couple sitting on a park bench in Paris. And this is how he describes it. It's, it's really uh, poetic language. It's really a beautiful description. Says, once in the light and warmth of an autumn afternoon, this writer saw on the bench of a public square in a poor Parisian suburb, an old and poor couple. They were sitting hand in hand in silence, enjoying the pale light, the last warmth of the season. In silence, all words had been said, all passion exhausted, all storms at peace. The whole life was behind, yet all of it was now present in this silence, in this light, in this warmth, in this silent unity of hands, present and ready for eternity, ripe for joy. This to me remains the vision of marriage in its heavenly beauty. Marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman uh, that is for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health. Marriage is till death do us part. What Shaman saw on that park bench in Paris is where most of us who are married are headed. Barring some kind of disaster, you and your spouse will grow old together. Pretty faces will wrinkle. Hair will thin and gray. Waistlines will expand. Health will falter. Many of the things that drew you to your spouse in your youth earlier in life will fade. What then will be left? It's interesting to me, for Shemem, the real icon of marriage is not a young couple in all their strength and beauty, but this elderly couple, frail and quiet, with their whole past history together now present with them in their older age. When the story of your love is complete, what will your legacy as a couple be? What's the best thing your marriage can leave behind to your children and to the world? I think the the best legacy of all for any marriage to leave behind is what Shmaman calls the heavenly beauty of marriage. It's that heavenly beauty. That's the best thing. That's the best legacy you can leave behind. We need to remember, marriage is worth the trouble. There is trouble, but there's also Beauty, Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is good. So many people today see marriage as an outdated or oppressive institution. People in our culture, especially outside the church, but even sometimes inside the church, people are very cynical about marriage. More young people than ever say they do not even want to get married. Uh, We hear so many marital tragedies, stories of marital disasters stories of adultery and abuse and divorce. Our society thinks very little of marriage, and it's been this way for quite some time. Uh, a couple generations ago, we began to redefine marriage by changing divorce laws. So no-fault divorce laws especially uh, coming in and uh, altering and, and undoubtedly undermining the institution of marriage in our society. Of course, then you can fast forward to just a couple years ago, the Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court, which uh, allowed same-sex couples to enter into marriage. I put it in scare quotes because I don't think you can have a real same-sex marriage. God has defined marriage. The Supreme Court doesn't have the right to redefine it. Uh, But certainly it shifted the meaning and understanding of marriage in our society. In fact, it's interesting to see how much marriage rates have declined among heterosexual couples. Uh, since the Obergefell decision, Uh, how it's undermined marriage in our culture. But attacks on marriage are nothing new. This didn't start with Obergefell or even with changing divorce laws in the 70s and 80s. Gloria Steinem said when a woman marries, she becomes a non-person. That was kind of part of the feminist attack on marriage. Betty Friedan said the home is a comfortable concentration camp for wisdom, for, for, for women. The actress Cameron Diaz a few years ago said, marriage is a dying institution. She said, I don't think we should live our lives in relationships based off of old traditions that don't suit our world any longer. Marriage is a convention. It was good for a time, but we don't need it anymore. We've outgrown it. We've got something better. About that same time, CNN ran an article entitled, Ready for for the Marriage Apocalypse. And uh, this article said, talk to any millennial person, any millennial-aged person, and you will soon envision a virtually marriage-free America. The the younger people, the younger generation simply doesn't aspire to marriage. They don't prioritize marriage the way people in the past have. In fact, that same article cited a Pew Research survey that found 66% of people aged 18 to 29 believe society is better off if people don't prioritize marriage getting married and having kids. This is the trend, this kind of cynicism and despair over marriage, thinking perhaps we've outgrown marriage. It's outdated, it's been oppressive, we should do away with it. It seems most of the news we hear about marriage is negative. Most of what we see in our culture about marriage is negative. How many positive pictures of marriage will you find in pop culture? The reality is, our pop culture rarely presents marriage and family life in any kind of positive way, in any kind of way that would make young people aspire to be married. If anything, pop culture makes traditional marriages, especially, look absolutely miserable. But even in the church, this can be a problem. One thing I've noticed, even in my own teaching, Uh, on marriage through the years, and I've certainly noticed it with other pastors that I listen to, is that we can focus so much on the sacrifices that marriage requires and the struggles that come with family life that we overlook the joys that come with it, that come with marriage and family. In other words, we end up putting the accent on the hardships and struggles more than on the blessings and benefits. Frankly, a lot of the church's teaching on marriage doesn't make marriage seem all that great. We don't present a really attractive view of marriage. Aaron Wren has recently pointed this out and suggested that uh, the net effect of this teaching has created a negative view of family, especially for young people in the church. Uh, Just one example of this, Russell Moore, who is a leading Baptist theologian, has come out with a new book called Storm-Tossed Family. And on the cover, it's got a picture of a ship that is uh, obviously trying to sail through the midst of a really terrible storm. It's the storm-tossed family. That's the fundamental picture. It's not the joy-filled family or the peace-filled family or the life-giving family. It's the storm-tossed family. Now, there's no doubt that family life can be stormy. Family life itself can be the source of a lot of those storms. And it's good for us to be honest about how hard marriage and family life can be. There are challenges, no doubt. Uh, Some of our deepest struggles and greatest suffering in life is caused by family relationships. Some of our greatest stresses and anxieties come from family life. Oftentimes it seems like family's not a refuge from the storm, but is itself the storm. I, I get that. I see that. But we need to recognize that the biblical picture, the the picture that Scripture paints for us of marriage and family life overall is not bleak, but joyful. It's not one of a storm-tossed family, but it's a glory-revealing family. Just think of some passages, Genesis 2, the very first marriage of them all, Adam and his wife. What does Adam do? He rejoices over his bride with song. Psalm 128, one of my favorite psalms, I've preached on it many times, we sing it regularly, Psalm 128 describes the blessed man, this husband and father, and his blessedness, his happiness is found seated around the table with him in the form of his wife who is a fruitful vine and his children who are like olive plants. It's a picture of peace and happiness. A home where there's harmony, where there's joy. You've got passages like Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon which serve as joyous celebrations of sex within marriage, the security and beauty of a sexual relationship, sexual intimacy within marriage. I could go on and on with examples of this kind of thing from Scripture. The Bible is overwhelmingly positive about marriage and family life. The Bible overwhelmingly presents to us this glorious and beautiful picture of what marriage is. And you might ask, well, why is this? Why do we have this picture in Scripture? Well, it's at root because of what marriage is designed to symbolize to the world. It's what marriage is designed to symbolize or picture. Okay, so imagine this. Imagine being an actor in the time of Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, the great playwright, comes to you and he says, I have written my masterpiece, my magnum opus, my ultimate play. And I want you to have a starring role in it. If you're a man, he's saying to you, I want you to be the leading man. If you're a woman, he's saying to you, I want you to be the leading lady. And he hands it over to you. He says, here's the script. Start practicing your line. Start learning your part. What's the role you've been given? Well, for married people, Ephesians 5 is that drama. It's that play. Ephesians 5 shows us the drama of marriage and the parts we've been assigned, the roles we've been given. The man plays the the leading role. He plays the part of Christ. He's the Christ figure. The woman plays the part of the church. She's the church figure. She's the leading lady in the story. For the man and for the woman, it is quite literally the role of a lifetime. This is the heavenly beauty of marriage Shaman celebrated. When Shaman looked at that park bench with that elderly couple and he saw the heavenly beauty, this is what he was seeing. A picture of Christ and the church. And this is why through all the hardships of family life, the hardships of getting older, of raising children, the ups and downs of health and finances, marriage remains a glorious and joyful institution. The man plays his part by putting on Christ, putting on Christ as clothing as it were, as his uniform, as his costume. The man plays his part by acting and speaking in Christ-like ways in his home, cherishing his wife and giving himself sacrificially for her, the way Christ has cherished the church and given himself sacrificially for his church. Yes, the man is to be the leader in the home as Christ is the leader of the church. The script he's been given says, you're the leader. You're the head of this household. Ephesians 5 says, the man is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of his church. And yes, this does mean that the man has an authority in the home no one else has. The man has an authority his wife does not have. But it also means the man has a responsibility in the home no one else has. He has a responsibility as a man that his wife does not have. A responsibility that comes with being the head, with being the representative of his whole household. But this is what you see with the Apostle Paul, his teaching on marriage here. This is what's so glorious. The man is to use this authority he's been given the way Christ uses his authority. Christ uses his authority for the good of others, especially for the good of his church, his bride. And so the man is to use his authority for her good, for the good of his wife. It's interesting, you know, Ephesians 5 says the wife is to respect her husband and certainly that's something that wives need to figure out how to do, even as husbands need to figure out how to love their wives. Women feed off of love, men feed off of respect. You're going to if you're going to make your marriage work, you have to recognize that for the woman, love is like oxygen. And for the man, respect is like oxygen. And unless you want to suffocate your spouse, that's what you need to be giving to your spouse. But here's the thing to remember, men. In the midst of, of thinking about this command that, uh, that your wife is given to respect you as a husband, it's easy for husbands to jump on their wives and say, the Bible says you have to respect me. But think about this, men. She can really only respect you if you as a husband are worthy of respect, if you are a man that she admires, if you use your authority in ways that she admires. Respect in the nature of the case can never be totally unconditional. Now there's a certain sense in which a wife can salute the uniform, so to speak, if her husband's not a good man, and that's a totally different situation than the one I want to talk about here. But in the nature of the case, respect cannot be unconditional. Men, her obligation to respect you puts an obligation on you to be worthy of respect. What do I mean when I say respect is not unconditional? Well, think about an infant, for example, a little baby. You can love a little baby, but you can't really respect a little baby because respect is bestowed when accomplishments are made. Uh, It's just the way that it is. You command respect by performing. And so men cannot escape the burden of performance, the burden of responsibility, the burden of leadership, the burden of protection and provision, the burden of representing Christ. It's in doing those things that he wins his wife's admiration and respect. Now, there are men who do this and would still say, I feel disrespected or I don't feel like I'm getting the respect I should in my home. And I just want to say, the best men are often taken for granted precisely because they're so good, precisely because they're so consistently reliable and dependable. You shouldn't be taken for granted. You should be told, you know, you should be thanked. You should be told thank you by those who are depending on you. But understand that there's a sense in which being taken for granted is the highest compliment you can pay a man. Because it means you can count on him. He's solid. He's going to get things done. Our culture is confused by manhood. Our culture no longer knows what to do with men, uh, which is kind of scary. Uh, But we don't really know what a man is or what a man is supposed to be. And this is because we have lost Christ as our archetype for manhood, our model for manhood. We don't have a good role model for what manhood is anymore. And it's because we don't have Jesus as the model man set before us anymore. But for us, if, if we husbands are going to fulfill our role in the marriage, if we're going to follow the script here, we have to be like Jesus. We have to model ourselves after Him. He's the model man, the model husband. So think about how Jesus is presented in the New Testament. Christ could be firm when He needed to be firm. You know, Think of Him turning over the tables in the temple. Uh, Think of him whipping the Pharisees in argument. Uh, Think of the way he suffers courageously. He doesn't chicken out. He goes to the cross, uh, even though it's going to bring incredible pain and torment. He could be firm when he needed to be firm. But he could also be sensitive when he needed to be sensitive. Think of him engaging with the woman at the well in John 4, gently leading her in a way that she will realize the folly of her lifestyle, or the way he is with the woman who's caught in adultery in John chapter 8, gently leading her towards repentance, forgiving her, and defending her from her attackers. That's that's Jesus. Firm when he needs to be firm, sensitive when he needs to be sensitive. Jesus has gravitas. He's clearly a great man, but he's also totally approachable. Everybody feels like they can come to him, like they have access to him. He's dominant. He's strong. He is a conqueror after all, going forth conquering and to conquer. He's Lord of lords and king of kings. But he's also utterly compassionate and wise and humble. He's not a stoic. He's not just a stiff upper lip kind of man. He is emotional when the situation calls for it. He can get angry or he can weep. But His emotions are always measured and controlled. When you look at Jesus, what do you have? You have this perfect picture of manhood. He's patient, and yet He's uncompromising. In all kinds of ways, He brings together these different attributes that men need to display. Husbands, what Christ wants to do through you is show himself to the world and especially show himself to your wife so your wife can look at you and say, oh, that's what Jesus is like. That's your role. That's the script you're given to imitate Christ, to be like Christ, to follow Christ, to become more and more like Christ. You know, one thing uh, about men is men find joy in finding purpose. A directionless man is a miserable man. A man who doesn't have direction and purpose is going to be very unhappy. This is why manhood is so linked with work, for example, because men find their significance in doing things and having a purpose in getting things done. I think one of the best descriptions of manhood ever written is Richard Kipling's poem, If. Uh, go look at that poem, then, if you haven't already. Uh, it was written for his son. I'd even encourage you to memorize it, have your sons memorize it. It's a great poem, I'm not going to read it for you here. But he gives these various attributes of uh, of manhood, what manhood looks like. And at the end of it, he says this. If, that's why it's called if, there are all these if statements. If you do these things, yours is the earth and everything in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I think the poem is really good for boys and men because it describes what it's like to live with purpose and direction. And the real gist of the poem, then, is overcoming obstacles in your path so you can fulfill that purpose. For a man, that's really where joy is found. Joy is found in fulfilling your purpose. Men, husbands, if, so here's the Rudyard Kipling thing, if, if you understand that your purpose is to be like Christ, and if you are determined to fulfill that purpose then you can deal with any trial. You can handle any setback that comes your way. And you can keep going. You can keep serving. You can keep building. You can keep the joy in your marriage because you have this purpose, this calling. When a man takes his cues from Christ in this kind of way, what happens? When he seeks to be like Christ in the home, what happens? Certainly he feels a deep sense of responsibility for his whole family. He realizes that, hey, as I go, so my household goes. And I'm steering this ship. I'm the captain of this ship, my family, my household. How am I going to steer it? When a man takes his cues from Christ in this kind of way, what happens? He becomes like Joshua. And he can say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He becomes like Job and he Praise on behalf of his children the way Job does, that God might forgive any wrongs they've committed. He becomes like that blessed man of Psalm 128. He seeks to bless his wife and his children to fill his home with joy and peace and love. He becomes like Solomon in Proverbs, seeking to impart wisdom to his children. He becomes like Jacob, wrestling with God in prayer for the good of his family. He becomes like the parents in Matthew 19. He brings his children to Jesus for blessing. He becomes like the man in Proverbs 31 who rises up to praise his wife and speak words of encouragement to her. I love the way John Piper puts this. Uh, Let me read to you what he says here, men. This is good for you. Says men, do not let the rhetoric of unbiblical feminism cow you into thinking that Christ-like leadership from husbands is bad. No, it is what our homes need more than anything. What I mean is this, you As a man, as a husband, as a father, you should feel the greater responsibility to take the lead in the things of the Spirit. You should lead the family in a life of prayer, in the study of God's Word, and in worship. You should lead out in giving the family a vision of its meaning and mission. You should take the lead in shaping the moral fabric of the home and in governing its happy peace. I have never met a woman who chafes under such Christ-like leadership. But I know of too many wives who are unhappy because their husbands have abdicated their God-ordained leadership and have no moral vision, no spiritual conception of what a family is for, and therefore no desire to lead anyone anywhere. Men, she can't follow if you're not leading. She can't follow if you're not going anywhere. If you're going nowhere in particular, don't expect anybody to follow. Piper goes on, he asks the question, where does a man belong? Where does a man belong? This is how he answers that question. Where a man belongs is at the bedside of his children leading in devotion and prayer. Where a man belongs is leading his family to the house of God. Where a man belongs is up early and alone with God seeking vision and direction for his family. A man like this is a man who lives by the words of Jesus in Luke twenty-two twenty-six where Jesus says, let the leader become as one who serves. The husband who treats his wife like his servant isn't leading. (laughs) If he simply seeks to boss everyone around in his home, that's not leadership. Think about the upper room in John 13 when Christ Jesus got down on his knees and was washing the disciples' feet. Do you think any of the disciples were wondering at that moment who their leader was? No, they absolutely knew this man who is washing our feet, this is our leader. Because that's what leadership really looks like. Man, if you serve well and teach well in your home, there will be no doubt who the leader in your home is. There will be no doubt. But what you need to see is how full of joy this is. This is a joyful role to play. You know, uh, men... Um, it is true. A heavy burden has been placed on your shoulders. A heavy burden has been placed on your shoulders. And that's good, because men are like trucks. They drive straighter with a heavy load, right? But carrying this load is pure joy. It will give your life joy if you will carry this load. Again, John Piper, he's really got some good things to say about this. His book, Christian, uh, his book Desiring God, is... Um, It's what he describes as Christian hedonism. How we as Christians are called to live for joy. And this is what he says about marriage. He says, The reason there is so much misery in marriage is not that husbands and wives seek their own pleasure, but they do not seek it in their spouses. The biblical mandate to husbands and wives is to seek your own joy in the joy of your spouse. That's what marital love is. the pursuit of your own joy in the joy of the beloved. That's what Paul's showing us in Ephesians 5. Husbands, Paul teaches the union between you and your wife is so close that any good done to her is good done to yourself. The way you treat your wife is the way you're treating yourself. When you care for her and cherish her, when you love her, you're really loving yourself. Paul wants you to love your wife as you love yourself. To devote the same effort and energy and creativity to making your wife happy that you naturally devote to making yourself happy. Again, go back to Genesis 2, the creation account. God said it's not good for man to be alone. The man needs someone to share his life with, someone to share joy with, someone to share God's love with. And it can't be an animal You know, the animals are brought to Adam and none of them prove to be a a, a suitable helper. So all that stuff about dog is man's best friend. Forget about that. I mean, dogs are wonderful, but a dog can't be your companion, a helper suitable to you. No, God gives Adam a wife, another human from his own flesh and bone, like him and yet also very unlike him. And Adam finds she is perfectly suited for him. And when he discovers this, he rejoices over her with song. Now, men, you don't have to sing over your wives. That may not bring your wives much joy depending on your voice. Only my wife would want me to sing. But men, you should be rejoicing over your wives. Your wives should know your joy. They should know that you're pleased with them and you're seeking to please them. Men, you should know your wife is God's gift to you, given to you for your good, for the sake of her joy and for the sake of your joy as well, that you might share in this joy together. Now let me talk to the wives for just a minute. What's the wife's role? She's handed a script as well. The wife's role is to be her husband's helper. And Ephesians 5 makes it clear, it's all politically incorrect today, of course, but Ephesians 5 makes it clear she's to be his helper by submitting to him and supporting him, by obeying him, by respecting him. I think, again, Genesis 2 may be the best place to go to really understand her role because it's where she's created and we see what her purpose is. She is made from Adam's side, from his rib. We're told Now, there was actually a feminist magazine back in the 1970s called Spare Rib uh, that was seeking to make a mockery of this, a mockery of the Bible's creation account, as if to say, no, the woman's not just a spare rib. It's not like she's just made out of spare parts, you know, the God had sitting around. But that misses the point. I mean, biblically, she's not the spare rib. Biblically, she's actually the climax of God's creative work. The woman is the last thing God creates. She is the climax, the pinnacle of creation. She's built from the man's side, taken from his heart, and then given to the man so she can be one with him, returning to his heart, dwelling in his heart again. The man is the head of creation, but the woman is its crown, its glory. The man is the head of the home, but the the woman is the heart. She has this glorious role, an indispensable task. This task that the human race has been given of forming and filling and multiplying, this creation mandate God's given to humanity, it requires her involvement just as much as His. He cannot do it without her. She is indispensable to the task. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 calls the woman the glory of the man. Hers is a glorious role. Her role is analogous to the church. So think about the church's role in the world for just a moment. Christ will not accomplish his mission of discipling the nations apart from his church. I don't want to say Christ can't do it without the church because obviously, as God in the flesh, he could do anything. That would apply. There's a discontinuity there with humans. But the reality is, Christ will not accomplish his mission without his bride, the church, being involved. And so, in a sense, the church's submission to Christ means the church is getting under Christ's mission. That's what submission literally means. You get on board with a mission. You subordinate yourself to the mission of another. That's what the church does. The church has this glorious calling, this glorious mission, because the church's mission is Christ. The church is on board with Christ's mission. As the church submits to Christ, what happens? As the church submits to Christ, she gives birth to new Christians and nurtures them in the faith. She feeds them at the table. She is Christ's helper and Christ won't accomplish his mission without her. He will not do his work in the world without the church. And so it is with husbands. Husbands cannot complete their mission in the world without the help of their wives. Her role is just as indispensable as his. Her help is absolutely necessary. And so what is a wife to do? The wife patterns herself after the church's relationship to Christ, helping her man fulfill his mission. Now put all of this together, the husband and wife and their roles as they're acting out these scripts. You put all this together, what do you have? You have a picture of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is just the story. It's just the condensed story of Christ and the church. It's the gospel. The marital script is the gospel. And so as husbands and wives live out this script, as they fulfill their roles, what happens? The husband and the wife picture Christ and the church. They reveal the gospel to a watching world. They embody the gospel to the glory of God. You know, it's, it's something like this. This is one way of thinking about it. The, your marriage is like a miniature solar system. It's a miniature solar system. And you've got God as the sun at the center of everything, at the center of your lives as husband and wife. The husband's like the earth, and so he's circling the sun, orbiting the sun as his center. And then the wife is the moon, and she's orbiting her husband, but also circling the sun with her husband as he pulls her along, as they circle the sun that's at the center of their lives together. That's a little picture of what you have in marriage. Or here's another way to think about it. The husband is the king. The wife is his queen. And their household is a little kingdom. A little kingdom of joy. Their children are citizens of this kingdom, brought up in the ways of the kingdom. And the husband and wife together as king and queen build their little miniature empire together. All to the glory of God working together to build something wonderful, to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like, to give a little miniature representation of the gospel. When we see that this is what marriage is all about, that marriage exists for the sake of something bigger than itself, that marriage exists for the sake of the gospel, to symbolize the gospel, we see it's not some outdated, oppressive institution. It's not outdated any more than the Gospel's outdated. It's not oppressive anymore than the Gospel is oppressive. Christ doesn't oppress His bride, the church. Christ-like husbands are not going to be oppressive to their wives. When we understand marriage this way, we see it's an institution that will last, that will always be needed as long as human history endures, when our symbolic marriages fall away at the last day, and the only marriage left is Christ and His church. But unless you're called to a life of singleness, you're given a gift of singleness, you cannot live without marriage. God is calling you into marriage, or if He's already called you into marriage, then live this out. Marriage is something that young people ought to be aspiring to because it's so glorious, it's so beautiful. If you're married, your marriage is very much something worth investing your life in. It gives shape and direction to our lives. And yes, it gives us some of life's greatest joys. And again, that doesn't mean that marriage and family life are about being happy all the time. That's not possible. No, it's not going to be easy. But when you see how marriage plugs you into this larger story, you can really see how it is one of God's best gifts to us. It's a way of God calling us out of ourselves and into something bigger, something greater. If you're just seeking your own fulfillment in marriage, no, you're going to be miserable. But when you seek your joy in the joy of your spouse, in the joy of the rest of your family, then you can start to taste real joy. See, Paul shows us here in Ephesians 5, there's more to marriage than we can imagine. What is the great mystery of marriage? It's this. This is what Paul shows us. God did not create the union of Christ and His church after the pattern of marriage. No, He created human marriage after the pattern of Christ and the church. And this means the roles that we are given in marriage as men and women and husbands and wives, no, they're not the same. And no, they're not interchangeable. But they're not arbitrarily assigned either. God made humanity in His image And He made marriage in the image of His relationship with His people. So in your marriage, you copy the relationship Christ has with His church. And you do it with joy. You must do it with joy. Because Christ takes great joy in His bride. Hebrews 12 says it was for the joy set before Him that He went to the cross and laid His life down for His bride. He found joy in sacrificing for her because He loved her. And His bride takes great joy in Him. The church takes great joy in Christ. You cannot symbolize the Gospel without joy. The script tells you to be joyful in the midst of all of this. Husband, seek joy in the joy of your wife by taking responsibility to lead as Christ led the church and gave Himself for her. Wives, seek joy in the joy of your husband by respecting his God-ordained call to lead you and your children to be the head of the family. This is the heavenly beauty of marriage. Shemamon was right. When we live in our marriages in the way God wants us to, with Christ-like husbands and church-like wives, all the pains of family life are really worth it. Because you see, the glory outweighs the pain. Yes, we're called to give up our lives to one another in our marriages, and our families. But guess what? We get them back. And then some. A great return on our investment. We get them back with great reward. And so when your autumn twilight on a park bench comes, you'll realize... It was all worth it. Your investment in your marriage, your sacrifices, your commitment, your sticking with it to fulfill your vows, sticking it out through the ups and downs, have returned to you a magnificent profit. You've gotten to be part of a larger love story. You've gotten to be part of a love story that points to the cosmic love story of Christ and the church. You've got to be a part of building a miniature kingdom that is a model of Christ's cosmic kingdom. And you'll be leaving behind a legacy. You'll be leaving behind to the world a radiant picture of the Gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for marriage, for this institution, what it points us to. Father, may we live faithfully in our marriages. May we prepare ourselves faithfully for marriage if we're not married and not called to a life of singleness. Father, would you fill our homes with the joy and peace that only you can give, a holy joy, a holy peace. Yes, there is hardship and struggle, but Father, we know it's all worth it. Laying down our lives for one another in our homes is worth it. May we experience this heavenly beauty in our families. This we pray in Christ's name.